So I, between work and school and preparing for this and life in general, I have been binge-watching Narcos okay. on Netflix. Great show. And it, there's been an interesting side effect. I think it's teaching me Spanish. Hey, you know, that's that's something they... That's what you pay the nine ninety nine a month for <laughs> for Netflix. Or pay no than, dollars a it's month. It's cheaper than Rosetta Stone. It's, it's great. I'm actually going to go out and try it. I'm going to take a little trip down to Puerto Vallarta and... See, uh, see what I've learned. <laughs> uh, it's just that every single interaction I have has to be about money or killing people. There is absolutely no way that that could go badly. No, no, no. not at all. No. Um, speaking of money and killing people, let's get to what we're going to talk about today. Uh, everybody, welcome back to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. My name's Rob North. And I am your co-host, Chris Miller. And today, we are going to talk about Chris... Meyer Lansky, the mob's accountant. Yes, we're getting into the mob. We are stepping away from pirates. We'll come back to it in future episodes, but uh, I've had a couple people over the course of this week when I've talked about the the uh, source material and, and, and the subject of, of the mob. You know, why are you guys stepping away from pirates? Look, the, the, title, of the, uh, the title of the podcast is Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. And I think Meyer Lansky and, and the people around him represent that completely yeah you a lot of these guys that we're going to cover in this upcoming episode are thieves rogues and or renegades yeah they fit the mold they definitely fit the mold uh this is also going to be our first two-part episode so we're going to be splitting uh, the meyer lansky story into two different episodes just because there is way too much material to cover in one episode that isn't gruelingly long for you to listen to yeah an, an awful lot goes on with this guy he's got a very important uh youth and upbringing which is really going to influence what happens to his life later uh especially like the the different uh relationships that he's going to kind of cultivate as a youth uh and where that kind of cements him in society to as a springboard for what he does as an adult yeah there's a lot to talk about with with lansky and especially because we are now dealing with a 20th century subject as opposed to 17th or 18th century subjects that we've covered so far, there is a lot more detailed material. But there is an equal amount of hearsay and conjecture as all of these men are celebrated liars. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. So for those of you who don't know who he is, Meyer Lansky was a Jewish-American gangster who embraced all three parts of our title as the, quote, accountant of the mob. And he was one of the driving figures behind the establishment of a national web of organized crime that came into being in the course of the 20th century. He was never convicted for anything more than illegal gambling, and he was one of the few gangsters to die of old age in his bed as a free man. He was known for his craft, his cunning, his intellect, and he broke into groups of organized crime that crossed ethnic and cultural boundaries. Now, he's, he's been overlooked as a pivotal figure in mob history, despite a lot of features in literature and in film and TV. Uh, he was played by Mark Rydell in the Sidney Pollock film Havana, which is awesome. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Played by Ben Kingsley in the film Bugsy, uh, who actually got a Best Supporting Actor nomination for the role, and an awesome portrayal by Anatole Youssef in the HBO series Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, that was a highlight of Boardwalk Empire. We, we had a conversation earlier where I wasn't real big on Boardwalk Empire. <laughs> You're a bigger Boardwalk Empire guy than I am. Yeah. Uh, Whenever he comes in, like he's a really like cool driving force in that yeah. show. Like, he's not—he's not like as overtly awesome as that dude with half a face. 
The half a face guy was really true. cool. True, true. But he, every time he's on screen, every time he's involved in, in a plot point, you do tend to sit up and pay attention. And it's like if, uh, like how Saruman was in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. It wasn't always there, but once you saw him, you knew like shit was going to get real. Yep, very cool. Uh, he was also the inspiration for the character of Hyman Roth in The Godfather Part Two, and for James Wood's character of Max, uh, Max Berkowitz in the awesome film Once Upon a Time in America. Yeah, in, uh, in The Godfather 2, they, they actually use a lot of his quotes. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of his lines are actually directly responsible. Like they, they come directly from the guy's mouth, which yeah. is pretty sweet. Now, before we get into the whole story of Meyer Lansky, just a quick thank you to everybody who listened to our previous episode where we discussed the difference between pirates, privateers, buccaneers, all of that terminology. Thank you, everybody, for the awesome feedback. Also today, we are performing in front of a live studio audience. Yeah. Normally, <laughs> Let's thank, thank the you, fan. Thank you, live studio audience. Uh, of, course, of course, on the floor sleeping in front of me is our canine, our canine outreach specialist, Jack, the golden retriever. But we also have uh, somebody joining us. Yes, uh, my sister, and uh, I guess is, as an attorney, my consigliere. Not a wartime consigliere. It's like Tom Hagen. <laughs> uh, my sister, Lauren, would you like to say hello to all of our listeners? Hello, I'm the Meyer Lansky to his every gangster in the 20th century. You're, you're the Sammy the Bull to his John Gotti. <laughs> you're going to flip on him and testify in front of Congress in a I always years. knew what happened. In a hot second. I always knew this would happen. I knew it would come to this. There is truly no honor among these. <laughs> Um, also, before we get to the story, to the I just want to go over what our main sources were for this uh, for these episodes. Uh, starting with Meyer Lansky, The Infamous Life and Legacy of the Mob's Accountant by Charles Rivers. We also have Meyer Lansky, Mogul of the Mob by Dennis Eisenberg and Ordi Don. And Daughter of the King, Growing Up in Gangland by Sandra Lansky, Meyer Lansky's daughter, and William Stadium. So... Lots of sources with colons in the title. <laughs> yes, yes, quite a few. Uh, this is also a time whenever we get to like watch interviews with the dude. Yeah. Like there are not, believe it or not, not a lot of interviews with Blackbeard on YouTube, which, which is weird. You would think that the, the guy would have had a better social media presence, but, but now we're dealing with somebody who lived until a, until after Jet the Return of the Jedi came out. So <laughs> yeah, we we it's. It's been very interesting dealing with modern sources and, and not having to, to parse through the mists of time so much. Yeah, like we actually know his name and birth date. We really, really do. Well, even though even though that's not of, necessarily true because the birth date appears either. two different things. So I say we just get straight into it. <laughs> Let's go for it. Let's Laura, go for it. Jump on it. we get straight into it? Let's get straight into it. All right. So. <laughs> Can't argue with that. <laughs> if we are the Muppet Show, she is the Waldorf and Statler. So, Meyer Lansky was born... Okay, here we go. Meyer Sukhalyansky. And I have no idea if I said that right. Probably but, not, but it's fine. By the way, there's going to be a, a lot of accents today that if you are Yiddish, if you are Italian... Now, there is a rule on the internet that states very clearly, uh, you can always use an Italian accent and it is never racist. So. I, well, we're about to test that today. Hey, hey so. look, I, the the bulk of my genetic makeup, I'm told, is Italian, so we're good. Like we're good. I, I get a free pass on this one. I'm very excited. All right, I guess <laughs> if I could do the Scottish accent, we can give this a try. So I have several Italian characters, and they're all going to make their appearance. So yes, Lansky was born Mayer Sukelyansky in Grodno, Russia, which is now part of Belarus, in 1902. To Max and Yero Sukelyansky, a young Jewish couple. The actual date of his birth is a mystery. 
Uh, his early school documents say August 28th, but his immigration forms say July the 4th, which, if you didn't know your actual birth date, was pretty standard on Ellis Island. Uh, he was born in a pretty tough period uh, and a pretty tough place to live for Russian Jews because Russia at the turn of the century was oppressive and it was violently anti-Semitic. And the first few years of the century saw a huge upswing in attacks and pogroms. Uh, for example, a, di a diary entry from Isaac Babel, a, um, a journalist and Bolshevik revolutionary, noted one such attack where assailants, quote, cut off beards, assembled 45 Jews in the marketplace, led them to the slaughter yard, cut out their tongues, put out their eyes, and cut off their testicles. Whales were heard all over the square, end quote. That's not including all of the rape. Well, yeah, it we're was, getting to that, too. Yeah. Uh, in another example, in Kishinev, which is south of Gorodno, on Easter Sunday, 1903, throngs of anti-Semitic rioters plundered 1,500 Jewish businesses, burnt most of the businesses and the homes to the ground, killed 59 Jewish residents, gravely wounded at least 100 more, and raped hundreds of women, including girls as young as three years old and women as old as 90. <sighs> so as a result of these attacks... You get a lot of Jewish gangs that are formed in these towns to help protect their homes and their families. And you can see where these old world gangs find themselves reforming in the countries where these people tend to immigrate. So given the sorts of attacks that I just mentioned, it's no surprise that Max hopped the boat to Ellis Island in 1909 to find work in New York as a garment presser. And two years later, sent for his wife, Meyer, and Meyer's little brother, Jacob. And when they arrived, as so happened... His name was anglicized to Meyer Lansky. So for the next few years, they have a hard scrabble life. They're moving from dingy apartment to dingy apartment in Queens and Brooklyn until 1914, when they moved down into the Lower East Side of Manhattan, home to a poor but very, very vibrant Jewish neighborhood. Uh, Meyer's, for the most part, a collected and pragmatic kid. He gets good grades in school. He's sociable. He's something of a bookworm. He does what a Jewish kid in 1914 in Manhattan tends to do. He does his chores. He goes to Cheder. Um, he serves the Holland on Shabbos. He seems to mostly avoid violent confrontation, a part of his nature that never really changes, because he was a small kid. As a matter of fact, he, he never really got that big. Depending on who you ask, he only stood between five feet and five foot three, uh, depending on what source you consult. But just because he didn't like starting fights doesn't mean he was above finishing one. So there's a story that when Meyer was 12 years old, he was walking home on Shabbos with a wrapped plate of food for his family. He's waylaid by some teenage Irish street toughs. Their leader brandishes a switchblade at Lansky, taunting him for his size and hurling anti-Semitic slurs at him. Meyer attempts to walk away. The hoods step in his path, demanding he pull his pants down to prove that he was circumcised. And that's when Meyer springs into action. He takes the plate and he smashes it on the ground. The plate on the ground. Picks up the largest piece of the plate and slashes the ringleader across the throat and wounds two more of his assailants before he's beaten into submission. It's a pretty boss move for a twelve-year-old kid. It is. It's especially a teeny tiny twelve-year-old kid. Yes, he is a little ball of mayhem when he needs to. Yeah, be. like this, this dude has seen some shit. He has, and like that's definitely a part of his character. Like you, you will. Come to learn that Meyer Lansky was a guy who did not tolerate an awful lot. No. No, he demanded respect. He did not tolerate insults well. But he did it in a way that was cool. He did it in a way that was collected. He was very, very selective in his use of violence. Um, another example, another anecdote from his childhood says um, he was walking around before Shabbat service one day. His mother hands him a nickel and sends him to settle the family's tab with the local baker. On the way, Meyer happens upon a sidewalk game of craps. 
and believing that he had sufficiently studied the game from afar, he steps in, hoping to double or triple his money, loses the nickel on his first roll. First roll. She gone. (laughs) So he has to go home, tail between his legs. He has to explain to his mother what happens, spends the entire service soaking in shame, swears at this point to never gamble when the odds are against him, especially not with somebody else's money, and then instead he was going to be the guy to govern the game from that point forward. And as an adult, he would later remark, there's no such thing as a lucky gambler. These are just winners and losers. The winners are those who control the game. All the rest are suckers. The only man who wins is the boss. End quote. So it's also on the rough and tumble streets of New York that Meyer would first become acquainted with a pair of guys who would become his lifelong comrades and business partners. Now this is a story that may be apocryphal. You can hear, uh, hear Jack down there. <laughs> That um, he's hovering over another game of sidewalk craps as he's coming home from school when a younger participant, a kid no older than 11 years old, kicks the dice aside, accuses his opponents and the guy running the game of cheating him, starts a fight, and a loaded pistol falls out of the kid's pocket. (laughs) Now, the guy fighting him scoops it up, cocks it, points it at this little kid's face, now, when this happens, Meyer steps in front of the gun, wrestles it out of the guy's hand. Everybody bolts as you start to hear the police whistles as word of the fight gets around. So Meyer grabs the kid. They run down the alley to get away. Kid turns to thank Meyer and offers a precious bit of advice and gratitude. He says, here's, the, here's my 11-year-old street tough voice. <laughs> Never let them see you with a gun in your hand. Never let them see who you are. Extra, extra. (laughs) You sound like Mickey Rooney. Give me 30 tapes. (laughs) Ain't you a pocket full of firecrackers? (laughs) The kid's name is Benjamin Siegel, but his nickname begins to resonate through the years. Earned for his sudden manic spells and his propensity for instantaneous cold-blooded violence. Kid's name? Bugsy Bugsy. Siegel. Crazy as a bed bug, old Bugsy Siegel. Now, Mlansky also meets the second person through the hard streets as well. A year or two later, Meyer becomes the target of these frequent shakedowns that would be carried out by Italian street gangs against lone Jewish pedestrians. These hoods surround him. They're carrying clubs. They're carrying bats. And they demand 10 cents a week in personal protection money that would render him untouchable to the other gangs and keep them on their own good side. Now, while most of the victims caught in these shakedowns would fork over the sum, no questions asked, Meyer stands his ground. You know, this is an illogical concept to him of settling a bill he doesn't owe, particularly for a service he doesn't want. And he tells the kids, he tells this to the gang's leader and just goes to walk around him. Now, the rest of the gang steps in to beat the shit out of the kid. But they're stopped by the leader who sees something in Meyer that he admires. He likes the cut of his jib. He likes the cut of his jib. The kid's got chutzpah, as they say. And uh, the leader of this little group is a pockmarked teenager with a lazy eye named Charles Lucky Luciano. Another name that we're going to come back to over and over again. He extends over his hand, over and over again, shakes it, and another bond is formed that is going to help shape the world of organized crime as we know it. And I want to take a moment to talk about what happens at this point, because this is going to indicate another theme throughout the career of Meyer Lansky, overcoming these ethnic and racial divides. Because up to this point, you have these segregated neighborhoods. People tend to keep to themselves. They tend to stay amongst their own ethnic groups. But Lansky starts to overcome that. He doesn't care about just working with with Jews. He wants to work with the Italians. He wants to work with the Irish. He wants to work with the Poles. He's going to work with anybody that can help him 
better his financial situation. And, and a Jewish gangster at this point is not unheard of. I mean, you whenever you think of like Hell's Kitchen and things like that, and, and, and Brooklyn and the Five Points and all these like really rough places mm-hmm. early in the 20th century, you think of Irish and Italian gangs. The Jewish gangsters very successfully competed with Irish and Italian gangs in small rackets, like yeah. gambling and shakedowns and well, hijacking. And, and these are mostly tough immigrant kids. Right, yeah. They, these are good not, at what they do. Yeah, they they came up big, in places like Meyer Lansky did. Mm-hmm. I mean, in fact, there's a, a, a group of guys who were... Definitely Jewish gangsters before their their career oh, took yeah. a very different now, path. When we, we, know when them we today say Jewish Brothers. gangsters, like I don't think of like Hasidic Jews <laughs> with machine guns. That's not no. at all what we're talking about. We're we're talking about a lot of well, at the time they were Russian immigrants, even though like a lot of them aren't from well, Russia. I don't think anymore. more of Newsies meets gangs of New York. It's kind of like honestly, it's like the McGregor fight. Yeah, it's like the crowd at the McGregor fight. Like there's dudes, big dudes. Beating the shit out of each other, just the ever-loving shit out of each other before the fight even starts. So it's that in New York every day. Yeah, welcome to America. <laughs> but yeah, but overcoming these racial divides takes a lot of charm. It takes a lot of pragmatism, and it takes a lot of skill. And Lansky had all of these in buckets. But he ends up leaving school at the end of eighth grade, which is common in this place and time. And begins to find employment to fit his natural affinity for machinery. Starts working as a car mechanic. He works in a tool and die shop. He seems to keep on the relative straight and narrow, relative being the oper- being the important term here. Now, it's during this time that uh, Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel start laying the foundation for what will become known as the Bugs and Meyer mob. And by age 16, Meyer was running floating craps games all around town, <laughs> making a point to run his games honestly, to foster a legion of repeat customers, and to preserve his reputation, and to play on the locals' addiction to gambling. And through his later teen years, as he becomes more and more successful, he starts growing this ambition to step out beyond his $45 a month mechanic job and leave the working man's life for good. And then something changes. January uh, January 16th, 1920, the 18th Amendment is signed. What goes into effect? Prohibition. Which is a damn shame as we sit here drinking. <clears throat> as, saying, drinking as, we sit here, as we sit here imbibing Nosferatu again, backed by popular demand. Mm. Mm-hmm. Thank you to our friends at Great Lakes Brewing Company. The 21st Amendment made what you're doing legal. Oh, God yes. bless America. <laughs> Thank you, legal expert Lauren. <laughs> but the outlawing of, uh, of the sale and consumption of alcohol had a catastrophic effect on policing in the U.S. So much so that um, there was a study that was done in 1920 and 1921 in about 30 major cities. And it said that crime rates spiked by 34%. Drug addictions rose 44%. And police department expenses rose 11.2%. Now, this is in a span of a year. So, it... it It's not like prohibition wasn't a great idea. Yeah. It (laughs) opens this huge door. It opens... um, Just everybody can walk right through it and start making money illicitly. And so by 1921, at the age of 19, Meyer starts to dip his toe into murkier waters. He still has his mechanics job. He does it well enough that he earns his superior's trust. And so they're either blissfully or consciously ignorant of the plateless cars the customers start bringing in to Lansky after hours for remodeling. Now, as he starts getting into the chop shop job, he starts cultivating his own crew with himself, his brother Jacob, Bugsy Siegel, uh, other members like Samuel Red Levine, Meyer Mike Wassel, Joseph Doc Stocker, and Irving Tabo Sandler. <laughs> I love these nicknames. Uh, and they begin to branch out into various new ventures beyond remodeling cars for bootleggers. His crew begins jacking vehicles, 
reskinning them, and then pawning them off. He also takes a page from Lucky Luciano's handbook, and they start running small-scale protection rackets, loan sharking, burglaries, uh, including an $8,000 bank heist, which is a lot of cash, because that's about 98000 bucks today. Mm-hmm. Which, for a bunch of small-time Jewish hoods... For young men. Yeah, that's a big haul. Young men. These he are started kids. doing this when he was 16. Yeah. So eight dudes are walking away with $98,000 cash. Yeah. Uh, and today's money. And, and, and Lansky's a genius at this. I mean, he's ferociously intelligent. For only having an eighth-grade education... I mean, it, it's astounding how smart he was. He's a very quick learner. He, he absorbs and eliminates all the inefficiencies within the organization. He resigns from the mechanic job, opens a car and truck rental garage, renting to bootleggers for a premium, and warehousing hot vehicles and other contraband. So the income streams are just expanding week by week by week. They're thinking of all these new ways to make money. And this meteoric rise in his criminal acumen catches the attention of someone of some much more established underworld figures. So by early 1922, Lansky's at a bar mitzvah when he meets a guy by the name of Arnold Rothstein. Uh, He's a famed crime figure. He's known as the J.P. Morgan of the underworld. Rothstein had made his first million by the age of 30, all through illicit means. And he was legendary by this time for his stock manipulations, his numbers rackets, his gambling joints, his racetracks, and he gained particular notoriety for his alleged involvement in the fixing of the 1919 World Series. Uh, I highly recommend you go and look at the story of the Black Sox scandal. The, go just the, watch the movie Eight Men Out, one yeah. of my all-time favorite underrated baseball movies. Eight I know Men like Out as well. three people that have seen it, and we all really like it, so yeah. you could be that fourth person. It's about the White Sox throwing the World Series against the Cincinnati Reds in 1919. Mm-hmm. So to quote Lansky regarding Arnold Rothstein, he had the most remarkable brain. He understood business instinctively, and I'm sure that if he had been a legitimate financier, he would have been just as rich, if not more so, as he had become with his gambling and the other rackets he ran. So, Lansky is starstruck. He's got a huge admiration for this guy. And Rothstein sees promise in Lansky. And he absorbs the Bugs and Meyer mob into his organization to help with his new ventures in bankrolling bootlegging operations, takes the 20-year-old Lansky under his wing, sharpens his skills, his foresight, focusing on expanding his operations. Now, Rothstein, like Lansky, also believed in bridging cultural divides within gangland environments for the sake of greater financial gain. And, most importantly, Rothstein instilled in Lansky the idea of regarding his schemes first and foremost as a business. It's, How it's do that I mindset. get this kind of internship? That's <clears throat> why, like, like, where was that whenever I was around? <laughs> you're, actually, you're right. It is like a gangland internship. That's exactly what it was. It's, it probably paid a little bit better. You know, I'm, I'm sure it did. <laughs> I'm sure it did. And to be fair, Lansky wasn't just going and getting the coffee. He wasn't an errand boy. I mean, he was running big facets of Rothstein's operations. Yeah, it was it was less of an internship and more as like a mentor, mentee. Almost mm-hmm. like he was a protege is essentially yeah. what Rothstein was grooming him to be Rothstein. But yes, he but he all, he instilled in him this idea of I'm not a criminal. Mm-hmm. I'm a businessman. He taught him to be a gentleman. It just so happens that the government does not like my business. Mm-hmm. And yeah, not only is he you know. is he teaching him about the, the ins and outs of crime, he's also showing him how to dress. Yeah. He's teaching him how to eat at a fancy restaurant. How to act. And, and yeah. also how to keep a low profile. Mm-hmm. You keep a low profile. That's how you keep the heat off of you. Yeah, that was another thing that we, we discussed with Lansky with how filthy, stinking rich this man was. If If you go and look at the pictures of him, if you look at what he was wearing like, mm-hmm. uh, next to a guy like Lucky Luciano, who was covered in rings and watches and 
all the most expensive stuff. Wearing these thousand dollar suits and yeah. Now Lansky, he wasn't wearing a cheap suit, but it was always very muted colors. He was very understated. Yeah, if, if anything, in. like if he was going out, he would wear like a bow tie, and yeah. that was as garish as it got. Well, from the day to day, if Meyer Lansky was walking down the street, you would not be able to pick him out as a man of particular means. Exactly. Now his shirt you might be. In. Very, very expensive, but it was a white shirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so Rothstein puts Lansky in charge of organizing and running security for the alcohol shipments they would smuggle in from Scotland. Yeah, Scotland. <laughs> and throughout the 1920s, <laughs> uh, Lansky and Rothstein began to beat out their competitors, not through violence, but through the quality of their booze. They were sending in good Scotch whiskey compared to the watered-down rot gut that most other bootleggers are providing. And through the timeliness and completedness of their orders and their relative forthrightness in their dealings. They weren't going to try to screw you over. Right. Now, uh, how did this... How, now, Rob, you can answer this question. Mm-hmm. How did the alcohol get into the country? The alcohol would get into the country mostly through small boats landing at night. Now, small boats landing at night didn't have a big crew. I would say they probably didn't have a cabin oh, boy. God damn it, you <laughs> yes! <laughs> Son of a bitch! Yes. Son of a bitch! Uh, he bet me before the show that oh, I could not shoehorn cabin damn. boy. Yes, pay up, pay up, pay How? up, you son of a bitch! How? Fine. Showing I, a fiber of your fucking fabric. Here's your <laughs> goddamn dollar. Follow us on Instagram to find a picture of me gloating over Rob with this dollar. <laughs> so- oh my god! You walked right into it, dude. <laughs> I'm so upset right now. These pipes are clean. I hate you. I don't I even remember so what we were talking about. That was just very thankfully. Important. Thankfully, I do because I don't have Cabin Boy on the brain all the time. <laughs> hey, you never should have bet me, bro. So, was there a Cabin Boy or not? What was the conclusion <laughs> on that on that issue? There, there could potentially have been a Cabin Boy. Uh, we will touch on that in episode two. I'm so, I'm, I'm so upset right I now. I know you're just a broken, defeated man. <laughs> Oh, my God. So, putting us back on track. Put this in a frame. After that little I hate you so much. Oh, yeah, baby. Oh, it smells so good. <laughs> so, the Bugs and Meyer mob teams up with the Broadway mob. Uh, it's a group of New York City bootleggers led by Joe Adonis and Frank Costello, whose head of distribution is no less than Lucky Luciano, to get their product into all the most famous speakeasies on the East Coast, such as the Silver Slipper, the 21 Club, and Jack White's. And throughout this period, Luciano and Lansky also began purchasing interests in dozens of clubs and speakeasies, numerous other homes, uh, lots of properties. So they now have financial covers for all of their businesses, for all of their operations. And in his self-penned memoir, Lucky Luciano credits Lansky with leading them into these new phases of their operations and solidifying the corporate-style structure that the organization was modeled after. He also credits him with tempering his hot-headed, violent style of dealing with adversaries and being a counter to the violence that began to envelop organized crime in the later part of Prohibition. He recalled that Lansky, five years his junior, could recite from memory passages from the book Making Profits um, by William Tossig. And Lansky would tell Luciano, quote, The writer talks about a thing called the law of supply and demand. What he says applies to us right now. If you have a lot of what people want and can't get... Then you can supply and the demand and shovel in the dough. In other words, that's what we ought to do with whiskey. Get plenty of it. Good, uncut stuff right off the boat and sell it at a high price to people who don't have the brains enough to not drink it. End quote. Now this concept, playing on the inevitable and unstoppable compulsion device, would become a creed within organized crime known as, quote, Lansky's Law. It's kind of how the 80s worked. <clears throat> well, basically, yeah. One, one, one would say that 
Wall Street's operations in, in the 80s were borderline criminal. Well, yeah. So Lansky, for a great flick, though. Yeah. So during the course of the 1920s, Lansky's wealth and crime ventures begin to explode, and his organization begins sinking their teeth into prostitution, smuggling of luxury goods like fur coats, the distribution of heroin and other narcotics, and the hijacking of competitors' contraband shipments. Now, Lansky always claimed... There's a little bit of piracy involved here. You knew we couldn't stay away. Uh, Not quite. Nope, we never really can. Uh, Now, Lansky always claimed that it wasn't just lowlifes who benefited from prohibition, but some of the, quote, most important people in the country were milking the cash cow as well. For example, one stormy evening in 1927, a convoy transporting Irish whiskey through the southern neck of New England gets ambushed by an armed party of henchmen belonging to a rival bootlegger who didn't take kindly to a competitor transporting booze through his territory. The entire shipment is seized. Eleven of the convoy's men are killed. And a debilitating financial loss is suffered by the commissioner of the ambush of the ambush convoy. Now, the commissioner of this ambush convoy happens to be none other than the U.S. ambassador to Great Britain. A fellow by the name of Joseph P. Kennedy. And Joseph P. Kennedy, of course, is the father of JFK. And there's the son a lot of, there's a lot of, like, the moves that Lansky makes kind of mirror Joe Kennedy. It's mm-hmm. like that's who he wanted to be. He didn't just want to accumulate money. Yeah. He wanted to accumulate power. He wanted influence more than anything. But it also shows that Lansky, while not being a violent man himself, is not afraid to leave a bunch of bodies in his wake Bingo. for the sake of his own gain. And it's said that the, that the person who gave this rival bootlegger the tip about Kennedy's convoy was none other than Meyer Lansky himself. Now, maybe it's apocryphal. I don't know, but... I think Lansky probably did have his finger on the pulse enough to know exactly exactly what was happening. According to his daughter's book, no, he did not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's also, you know, you got to protect dear old dad. I, I, the a, book it, is great. It's very insightful, but yeah. every thought ends with, but he, no, he didn't. But no, he didn't. Yeah, he didn't actually know. My dad's an innocent man. He wasn't Which is really brilliant because he yeah. was. He was. Like, I, like he, the man was never at the scene of the crime. Yeah. It was absolutely brilliant. When there's smoke... It's, it's a duck. That's, that's what the saying is, right? Anyway. It's close enough. <clears throat> so, autumn 1928, Lansky's fortunes expanded even further because Arnold Rothstein is shot and killed over a $320,000 gambling debt. Mm-hmm. And Rothstein's ventures are divvied up between Lansky, Luciano, Siegel, and some other associates. And the Broadway mob's acquisitions become even more aggressive than with all of their stars in the ascendant. So, it's during this time that Meyer gets married to a woman named Anna Citron. Mm-hmm. Bugsy Siegel, serving as the best man. <laughs> And he goes on to have three children, including his daughter Sandra, who later went on to pen a book about being the daughter of this mob mogul. Uh, so in addition to gaining huge amounts of wealth and influence, their activities begin to clash with the interest of a group of mostly Sicilian immigrant gangsters known collectively as the Mustache Peaks. As somebody who has read The Godfather <laughs> over and over again, mm-hmm. it's one of my all-time favorite books. The fact that we get to talk about the mustache piece oh, yeah. makes me so impossibly happy. Yeah. The pits and Avante, the old fifty calibers. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. No, yeah, Mario Puzzo goes into this a lot. Like talks about these guys. And in New York at this time, they're led by old school figures like Giuseppe, Joe the Boss Masseria, and Salvatore Maranzano. Now these guys ran organizations that functioned more like the old street gangs and were utterly against working with gangsters from different uh, ethnic backgrounds. So, in, in wanting to stay within the Italian community. And now the younger upstarts within the Italian gangs begin to get frustrated by what they see as missed financial opportunities. Lansky, Siegel, and Luciano seeing an opportunity to begin organizing a cross-cultural uh, 
wing of new up-and-comers organize this group, this alliance that becomes known by several names, including The Syndicate, The Combination, and later, Murder, Inc. Later head, uh, headed by uh, Jaw Rule. <laughs> Murder! <laughs> I'm not oh. as upset about that oh, as I if we am about get the a picture, bullshit. If but... we can get a picture of Rob's face at that point. <laughs> just where he can see me as the anchor. Drive, just dragging this whole son of a bitch down. Right, okay, at least we're still not talking about <coughs> fucking Cabin Boy. And how you and how you lost a dollar. The yeah, dollar but... I have in the in the picture frame tucked in next to me. This dollar? So. Hang on. Guys, just so you know, like this dollar, it is a... K3849328H. I don't know if by announcing that you just committed a federal crime or not. It's a series 2009. It's never going to make it into the fa- like it's going to get framed. I'm going to put it on your side of the kitchen table. I'm, I'm s- and whenever I finish and to make this, this even better, dear listeners, it is the saddest looking thing I've ever seen. It is. It's got it's got folds. It's got the uh, classical well, looking weathered edges. Lauren, you're not helping. <laughs> Well, I mean, technically, I'm his counsel, not yours. But we've got a bit of a conflict of interest. You're not a wartime constantly, Lauren. You stay the hell out of this. We're going to the mattresses. Yeah, Lauren has officially become the Sammy the Sammy the Bull to Chris's John Gotti. But so the syndicate Just is is formed with garrote wire for the good of our nation. But the syndicate is formed of this. The syndicate is formed of this same corporate structure, and it, it has a board of directors at the very top. Now, the first chairman of this board of directors, you all right over there? <laughs> We're just getting used to this format with the live studio audience. It's I chaos. Hit the cough button. It should be fine. It's chaos in here. Oh man! But Meyer Lansky is the first chairman of the board to head the syndicate. So May 1929, this large summit meeting is arranged in Atlantic City, hosted by uh, the crooked Atlantic County Sheriff and political boss Enoch Nucky Johnson. And attended by Lansky, who, as a newlywed, was the guest of honor, given the presidential suite at the Ritz Hotel. Uh, Bugsy Siegel, Lucky Luciano, other gangsters such as Al Capone, Dutch Schultz, Frank Costello, representatives from the five Italian crime families of New York, and representatives of smaller organizations from over 40 cities all around the country, such as Chicago, Boston, New Orleans, Philadelphia, St. Louis, and a pair of mobsters named Frank Amato and John LaRocca, who went on to lead the modern Pittsburgh crime family. Conspicuously absent of these uh, were from from this summit were any of the mustache peats. They were not included. The old fifty calibers. So discussed at this summit meeting was uh, the idea to stop competing with each other when it came to bootlegging and pooling resources on a national level, maximizing profits and establishing a national monopoly in the illegal liquor business. One of the other most important discussions was what to do when prohibition ended. So the bosses decided to reorganize themselves and their gangs into cooperative organizations, investing in legitimate breweries, distilleries, and liquor importation franchises, so that when Prohibition comes to an end, they still have these revenue streams. By making investments into the legitimate liquor business and by owning nightclubs, bars, and restaurants to distribute the liquor and maximize profits, this gives the syndicate a lot of security once their businesses go legit. And the delegates also held discussions about taking a larger interest in illegal and uh, cooperative gambling activities such as bookmaking, horse racing, and casinos, which is going to come into major play later with Meyer Lansky's activities in Florida, Cuba, and Las Vegas. However, one decision that held the most significance for Lansky was what to do about Masseria and Maranzano, the old school bosses standing in the way of true control of New York. 
So it's decided that the method of takeover would be to wait for a dispute to uh, erupt between the two. You eliminate one boss, you claim allegiance to the other in order to consolidate your gains, and then you eliminate him in turn, whilst new syndicate allies in other cities would eliminate the old guard in their towns if need be. So in order to facilitate their takeover, a method for contract killing was put in place by the syndicate, and this is how they ended up with their nickname of Murder, Inc., and it was as follows. First, one has to submit a request for the, order, for the murder in question, which is then reviewed and voted on by the board of directors. Following a green light from the board, the contract was assessed and appraised by Lansky himself. He had full unilateral control over final approval. No stamp of approval from him, no murder. So following his approval of the contract, an out-of-state agent would be selected and presented with the proposal. He would then acquire the necessary weapons and gear, travel to the location of the hit, scope out his target for a few days to find the best time to make the kill, the hits carried out, the body disposed of, any witnesses bribed or themselves murdered, and then the killer would flee the city. You Uh, pop the dude on a train, out he goes, problem solved. Yep. And uh, other rules were put in place, such as uh, no killings of politicians, government workers, journalists, women or children. That way you avoid too much negative press and you keep probing eyes to a minimum. And no killings born out of uh, personal grudges would be approved either. You sit down, you handle it like men. You're not going to kill each other, you're going to talk it out. If we all would have done this, Sonny Corleone would still be here today. So we lost him on the causeway. Yeah. So as predicted by the conference, in 1930, Masseria and Maranzano declared war on each other, and the syndicate, with Lansky at its head, made their move to snuff out their main impediment to full control of New York. In what became known as the Costa de Marese War... Uh, the syndicate bided its time to see who would take the advantage, and within a year, the feud began to tilt Maranzano's way. So Lansky, Luciano, Siegel, they reach out to Maranzano, and they strike a deal. If he's willing to swallow his pride and back down, ending the war, thereby ending a frivolous dispute that would save all parties a lot of grief in the future, they would take out Joe Masseria. Took some convincing, but Maranzano agrees. On April 15, 1931, four hitmen, believed to be Joe Adonis, Vito Genovese, Albert Madhatter Anastasia and Bugsy Siegel enter in the Nuovo Villa Tamaro, popular Coney Island seafood restaurant, where Masseria is playing cards in the back with Lucky Luciano. Luciano conveniently excuses himself to go to the bathroom, and the four assassins burst in. They fire over 20 bullets. They hit Masseria five times. He dies instantly. No arrests are made in the killing. With Masseria out of the way, Maranzano wastes no time seizing control and reorganizing the Italian mafiosi in New York, placing himself at the top of all five primary families by declaring himself capo di tutti capi, or the boss of bosses. Now, within a couple months, Lansky's contract management services are requested by Luciano himself, who starved for power, yearning to eliminate Maranzano and commandeer the five families under his leadership. But Lansky doesn't grant approval immediately. Maranzano gets wise to the potential hit, takes out a hit on Luciano, but Glansky is warned, tips off Luciano, aids him in escaping an ambush. He then approves the hit on Maranzano. On September 10th, 1931, he hires four unnamed mobsters. We don't know, we don't know their names. I can't, couldn't find them in any source, but they think they were four Jewish mobsters from out of town. A lot of these guys were Jewish gangsters, and, and the one reason that I found in a lot of interviews was the reason you would use a Jewish guy over an Italian guy is because they didn't look Sicilian. No. They just kind of blended into the crowd. The Sicilians yeah. knew their own, and they knew everyone. 
So they didn't know you. You were beneath them. They really racism was, believe it yeah. or not, incredibly rampant in the, no. in the 30s. And yeah, the and they would tend to use they they wouldn't use Sephardic Jews either because they looked too Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. They would use the Ashkenazis, the European Jews. And so these four Watton officers walk in. They pose as I R uh, they pose as IRS agents to enter the Helmsley Building, Maranzano's headquarters. They head to the ninth floor. Soon as the elevator doors part, the assailants disarmed Maranzano's security. They storm into his office. He's flung against the wall. He's stabbed in the face four times, strangled with a garrote, and then shot six times. If you're going to send a message, yeah, send a message. <laughs> they're thoroughs. And then within the next two days, as many as 50 associates with ties to Maranzano were butchered. And it's said that this orgy of violence was orchestrated by Lansky, slaughtering dozens without him having to touch a single blade, a single firearm, single garrote. He's just in the back, directing all of it. Yeah, that now, was kind of his his M.O. was a puppeteer. Yeah. He kept his hands very, very clean. So with the last of the mustache Pete's gone, Luciano declares himself capo di tutti capi, is at the head of the five families, sets up a leadership board similar to that of the syndicate, with the heads of the Gambino, the Lucchese, the Bonanno, the Colombo, and the Genovese families making up a voting body known as the Commission. Now, they're going to go on to play an important role in the golden age of the mob in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Lansky's granted the privilege of valued associate and is permitted to conduct business on Italian turf as he pleased. Yeah, but he, he would never be a made man. He would never be a made man. He was always kind of an outsider. Well, you couldn't be made if you weren't Italian. Yeah, well, he, and he, weren't he Catholic. wasn't Sicilian, so he could not be made. Yeah, if you weren't Catholic, because the, the ceremony for becoming a made man involves the burning of a picture of a saint held in your hands with your blood. And if you weren't of a Catholic, if you weren't Catholic, then you can't be a made man. Yep. It just doesn't happen like that. Yeah, which really had to rankle the dude. Like a mm-hmm. lot. Yeah. But he also goes on to use that energy, that outrage, towards his uh, immense financial gain. And now, the syndicate's fully in place. So you have no impediment from old-school, old-world mobsters, and a new golden age is in place for a national, organized crime body, ready to wring out untold amounts of money with all sorts of nefarious activities in every corner of America, and soon, around the world. And in the shadows, at its head... Controlling operations and bankrolling its, act- its activities, none other than the man we're talking about today, Meyer Lansky. Just like that friend you know that gets up really early to go to the gym, <coughs> or any duck, Meyer Lansky said, come on guys, let's get this bread. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's where we're going to leave it off, and we're going to pick up next week with Meyer Lansky, part two. And so next time we're going to get into some of his more, most ingenious schemes to date, where he's going to the glittering lights of Las Vegas, he's having dust-ups with Cuban revolutionaries, and we're going to get into the really, really interesting story of a man with his finger in every organized crime pie in America managing to avoid the law like no one else ever really has. It's going to get really, really interesting. Lansky Part 2, the Lanskying. (laughs) All right, so that's going to be it for this week. Chris, what do you think? I think this was a good one, man. I, I'm looking forward to our first official two-parter. Mm-hmm. I really like this one. Part two is is going to be nuts. I, I was not prepared for the breadth of this yeah. with the amount of political influence that's in this. Yeah, because we're going to start to get Congress involved. We have congressional hearings. It's people like Thomas Dewey getting involved. It's going to get... It's going to be a web The man of influences... 
countries. Yeah. Leaders of countries. Like, he has an influence on 20th century history. Yeah. He really does. He really does. It, 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 yeah, the story next week is going to get very, very wild. Yeah, it's, there's a reason why The Godfather 2 is a movie. Yeah. And it, it's because all the shit that this dude did was real. Yep. And, like, The Godfather 2, the exploits in The Godfather 2 were fairly tame. Compared to what Lansky absolutely, like what he actually did. It's mind boggling. Mm-hmm. It's mind boggling. And the fact that he did all of this and he never got caught for anything significant at all. So, yeah, I can't wait to talk about it next week. Guys, everybody, thanks for listening. I know I've had fun this week. Chris, I hope you have too. Lauren, it's been okay. Thanks for hanging out today. <laughs> Your thoughts? Bravo, gents. <laughs> Your thoughts Bravo. on Lansky, I mean. <laughs> well, I, I think that, you know. As playing my role as the legal consultant to the show, uh, the fact that he was the fact that he was never convicted of anything indicates that he didn't leave much evidence around because no. that's the key. You know, people can commit crimes till the cows come home, but if a case against them can't be proven beyond a reasonable doubt in court, so much for that. And that was true in the middle of the century, just as it's true now. Yeah, it really, it really, really is. Um, yeah, so. We're going to pick them next week. It's going to get wild. Lauren, thanks for joining Lansky us. Doing nice. Thank you job. for having me. <laughs> and, of course, special thanks to our canine outreach specialist, Jack, asleep on the floor below me. Uh, who's not, like, milling around clicking on the floor like he <laughs> yeah, was you, around you, the 20 You might have mark. earlier heard from him a little bit. Um, also, thanks to our friends, the Bloody Seamen, for the use of their music at the beginning and the end. We highly suggest checking them out on social media. Best, best damn pirate punk band in Pittsburgh. Speaking of social media, Chris, where can they find us? I tell you what, if you want to follow us, and I feel firmly that you should, mm-hmm. uh, you can check us out on Twitter at PodcastTRR. On Facebook, you can search us at Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. And on Instagram, we are at TRRPod. And if you want to drop us an email, please, by all means, don't be shy, uh, TRRPod at gmail.com. And as always, after the episode is dropped on our SoundCloud page, which is linked directly to our Twitter and Facebook, you can find us on YouTube at Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. Yep. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Meatneck, and you can find me on Twitter at Meatneck2. Yeah, and if you try to follow me on Instagram, I'm calling the cops. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we will see you next time with Meyer Lansky Part 2. Take care of yourselves out there. And to quote Meyer Lansky himself, all you have to do is recognize an opportunity. So go out there, recognize an opportunity, and of course, hold fast.